I think that what's unique about the London market is that in some ways it is the most sophisticated market, but also is so close to the global market and the U.S. market. Well, we're back. It's the second episode of the new show where Nigel Walsh from Google Cloud US and I, Matthew Grant from Instech, get a chance to discuss the current items that catch our eye and are intriguing to our wonderful guests. So welcome to all of you. If you're a regular listener and you've just discovered us, well, hang in there for a pacey and insightful discussion. Nigel and I are joined by Marth Nataris, partner at Brewer Lane Ventures and a long-standing friend of both of us, and Charlotte Alcott, Nat Milliman, and a well-known presence in the startup and scale-up world from InsureTech and beyond. Well, we enjoyed recording this. I'm sure you're going to enjoy listening to it. Please do let us know what you think. If you'd like to have your question recorded for a future episode of this or any other episode of the Instep Podcast, then please just click the link in the episode notes and you can record directly from your phone or your computer. If you've a fancy being on a podcast, well, that's the quickest and easiest way to do it. And we'd love to hear what you think, even if you don't want us to record it. Better still, we can put you on the show. Hello and welcome back to our latest episode of InStech News. Today we are delighted to be joined by a number of fantastic guests as always, along with my co-host Matthew Grant. On today's show we're going to cover record funding for a Series B in the UK, kicking up a storm, growing geopolitical crisis and more. So with that Matthew, over to you. Thanks, Nigel. And so glad you can make it back. The first episode was sufficiently successful that we felt we should uh, we'd do a second one. And really thrilled to have both Martha and Charlotte. Thanks to both of you. Martha, I know you've got up at, well, I know you got up very early because it's now six o'clock in the morning, New York time, and you've already been probably for a run around Central Park. So uh, Martha, I'll come to you in a minute. Charlotte, great to have you in your new role. I uh, think it should be known to many people, given all the things you've been doing. So Martha, just very briefly, given your length of experience, quick catch up on uh, what you're up to just now. Uh, sure. I'm with Brewer Lane Ventures, and we are investing out of Fund 2, which is a $200 million fund, primarily Series A, some Series B, although not a hyper-exponential size yet. And we are uh, really focused on insure tech and a little bit of fintech, especially in the wealth area. No, great. We've been really enthusiastically following what you're doing. And and Charlotte, what about what are you, what are you up to these days? It's great to be here. Uh, so I've joined Milliman in London to lead the firm's InsureTech services for general insurance and uh, insurers and InsureTechs in the UK. I've spent 15 years building InsureTechs here in the UK in telematics, in homeowners, and most recently in pet insurance. So I'm just incredibly excited to work with the whole market to drive forward an, an industry that I absolutely love. Uh, and Nigel, for the one person out there that doesn't know who you are, who are you and what are you up to just now? Like the rest of us, we're all very passionate about this industry. I've been around insurance for quite a few years as well. I lead insurance for Google Cloud globally, helping to bring together a whole host of folks, not just in Google Cloud, but also the Alphabet group of companies. So working with folks like Google X, or the Moonshot Factory, as many folks know them as. I'm on the advisory board for Capital G. And I genuinely, you said it best last time, I spent my life connecting people, which is my favorite thing when it comes to the world of insurance. And it looks like you're back in the UK just now. I know you're spending your time these days over here and over in the US. Yeah, I'm actually back in the UK. We had our global sales kickoff 
last week in London. I've got a bunch of things this week and then heading back to New York shortly. Great. Well, it'd be good to know that you're uh, you're not wasting your time because about 30% of people listening now are based over in, in the US. So you can capture your US clients as well. So we're going to crack on with our, our first news item. So really pleased to see the news came in a couple of weeks ago now from Hyper Exponential. And I actually managed to record a, a very short interview, five minutes with Amrit, the CEO, talking about why and how they raised their $73 million and how they're going to be using it to build out their, their pricing platform. So this is what Amrit had to say when I caught up with him last week. Amrit, many thanks for carving out some time. I'm sure you are incredibly busy when you have announced $73 million of funding. That's very exciting times. How are you feeling? Good. Yes. Relieved more than anything to get it done, but very excited. Yes. And clearly big changes coming for HX as we kind of look to take the new team of investors and this new capital that we've raised, deploy it and take the company forward. So yes, excited and relieved. And yeah, on the investors, two two really strong investors in there. Andreessen Harowitz, many people will know, obviously a very big investor across lots of tech, but also, I mean, Battery Ventures, Marcus Ryu is on the team at Battery Ventures. And of course, he was the founder of, of Guideone. I think he's now coming onto your board as well. Is that right? He is, yes. So Marcus Ryu and Battery led the investment. Marcus is, you know, a legendary CEO in the insurtech space, the founder of the last Decacorn, $10 billion business peak valuation Guidewire in our space. Angela Strange is joining as well from Andreessen Horowitz and our trusted friends Highlands also increased their investment. So three great investors, two new ones, all coming to the table in this round. Decacorn means 10 billion, doesn't it? If I've got a mass. Yes. Well, it's, I mean, it's fantastic. Not obviously just good for you, but generally people in the space to see some significant investment coming in at the B round. And, you know, I often use you as an example of a company that went out there, found clients, found revenue first, and then built the revenue in afterwards. But, you know, I'm sure everyone's wondering how are you going to be spending that money? We've talked a lot about scaling the business in the past in our sector. Our sector is fascinating. It's broad. It's got lots of parts. And for us, there's very clearly two sectors or sections of the market that we're getting pulled into. One is the US. We've already got a number of US clients that are sensitive to being named, although most people know who they are in the industry already, and putting down roots in the US to allow us to service them better. And the demand from the new wave of clients on that side of the pond is a key focus for us. And the other sector that we're interested in is expanding into alternative verticals that sit next to the ones we service at the moment. So lots of people will know us as a provider of software for specialty and commercial insurance, and that's absolutely been our focus. But the SME sector sits adjacent to that, uh, and we've already had clients start to use our product there and there's lots of investment we can make in the product to make it better and more fit for purpose in that sector too so two very clear uh, areas that we want to invest in and hx renew it, to me it seems like it's tapping into a theme maybe you're leading the theme of technology infrastructure that's essentially making people's lives easier and it's a little bit different than some of the, the highly funded rounds we, we saw before but has that been your experience and i'm really interested just when your investors are looking at you how they were thinking about their own investment thesis these days? It's a great observation. I think you're right. You'll have seen many of the mega rounds been invested in tech-enabled services or businesses with a significant balance sheet element, right? All the famous ones that people have seen over the last couple of years that went public or, or didn't. But what we're seeing now is people realizing that those aren't necessarily the same form of technology business as one like ours, which exactly as you say, Matthew, is an infrastructure, pure play technology business that exists to create leverage for the broader sector. And so certainly in the early stages of investment conversations, people were trying to work out which one that we were. But when you look at what we do, you look at our profile of our business and our growth and the offerings we have, people clearly saw, you know, that we were much more of an, a kind of pure technology business 
and that was reflected in the appetite from the investment market. Brilliant. Well, look, you've got a lot going on. I don't want to take up too much of your time. But anything else, as you sort of look out at the world around you or want to reflect on your experience for the last couple of months we should talk about? Yeah, I think a couple of reflections, really. The first one, I think, is, you know, we work in a sector, all of us in the insure tech space, and we know how important the work we do is, how important leveraged it is on our sector, but more broadly to the economy. Uh, I think it's wonderful to see investors, the likes of Battery and Andreessen Horowitz, kind of showing by putting their money where their mouth is that they see these problems as important too. These companies don't invest in businesses that they think are going to be small or insignificant. And I think it's wonderful, an indictment of the work that we do as a broader industry and that HX is doing, that this is clearly seen as a must-have rather than nice to have. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I would say is I think, you know, people look at software startups or scale-ups and sometimes they see them as flash in the pan. And there's clearly a number of those that have been sadly kind of examples of those in the past. But I'd also say, you know, we need to be as an industry creating businesses that last as long as our clients do. And HX being a profitable business has always had the kind of default alive trajectory. But strengthening our balance sheet here is kind of a very clear. It kind of shows how, that we can kind of go the distance and be there as a kind of trusted provider of software to our clients for the long haul. And I love that analogy. Like it lasts as long as your clients, particularly when you're in an industry that's had insurance companies going for hundreds of years. That certainly sets a very strong foundations. Well, I mean, that was great. To hear you. Congratulations again. If anybody wants to hear more with our discussion, it was episode 263 of the podcast back in September. And yeah, I look forward to seeing you and your team out in New York in what will be well, not, not very long. Really great to hear that from you and Amber. I've known Amber for a very long time. I'm, I'm really pleased to see this. Great also to see a new name in the world of InsureTech. Maybe I've got that wrong, but it feels like it's one of the first big investments from uh, Andreas Horowitz in, in this space. But I'm going to be quiet because we have the expert on the call. So Martha, would love your take on what this is, what it means to the industry, where we go from here. Absolutely. I'm not sure it's quite true that this is uh, that Andreessen is entirely new to InsureTech, but absolutely bold investment. And my own belief is that the combination of Amrit and Battery, of course, uh, as well as Andreessen, is really uh, positioning the company uh, to take the U.S. by storm, because I think what uh, Hyper Exponential has done is really made a, um, a more forceful market penetration in the UK than many others, and he's getting rewarded for that success. More broadly, for the insure tech market, I think one of the things that this indicates is maybe we're pulling out of the 2023 doldrums where really nothing was happening. And now there is a realization that there are high quality insure techs and uh, those need to get supported. There has been some clearing out of people who, who have been consolidated or acquired. And I think one of the things we're going to see going forward is uh, a focus, uh, a flight to quality. It's a really interesting point you said about some of these ones being consolidated. There seems to be enough doom and gloom in the market. I mean, last year was a tough year for, for many out there. I think even the year before, there was zero investment from memory in start in Series A startups. It was like very little or zero uh, completely. So it's nice to see the year kick off with something like this. It's a, it's a huge number. It's a great team as well. The other thing that springs to mind, and maybe Charlotte, one for you is, Given your experience in B2C in tech, which I think is infinitely harder, 
does this mean a shift in strategy for many around, actually, let's go after the enablers or the B2B folks? I think it's a fantastic point, Nigel. Really interesting that pricing, that something around pricing and around data has seen this sort of success. I'm not surprised at all. Uh, Pricing and data, they are the key hearts of insurance. So key as a function. As a little insight into, you know, pricing, I'm an actuary myself. First 10 years of my career were all actuarial consultancy. As a pricing team, you've got to be so forward-looking. You've got to synthesize everything you know from the past, but also have this crystal ball for the future. And in a, a risky world, in a changing world, it's not surprising at all, is it, that we get companies like this doing data in such a fantastic way, driving forwards the future of insurance. I think it's fascinating to see the global lessons starting to be learned. Pricing in over in Europe is totally different from pricing in the US in many ways. In many ways, it's back to front in terms of the way you do it, but the fundamentals are the same. The great understanding of risk is the same. So you're right. I have been through sort of three rounds of, you know, insure tech successes in the B2C world, but every success I've ever had in InsureTech has been built from fantastic partnership. Fantastic partnership of the reinsurers or the carriers at the back and either the MGAs or the data providers or the better marketing tools at the front. So you don't have to do it alone. And this is another example of where that B2B layer can come in, slot in, rocket fuel what is already there. You're already flying the plane. Everything's already moving forward. It is sometimes much easier to look sideways at a fantastic solution that's been developed and slot that in, change that. I couldn't agree more. I actually think the the simplicity, especially in our industry where we don't necessarily like change, the simplicity of taking one enterprise software company and replacing it with another or a legacy process replacing it with an enterprise software company is really interesting and actually much easier for people to consume and engage with. I actually, Martha, one back to you. I had a question for you because Charlotte brought up, and actually you mentioned as well about them going to the US. What's the pattern or history look like for insurtechs that have jumped out of their home territory? Most of the insurtechs I've seen do that have come from the U.S., where in some ways there are advantages to the U.S. in that 50-state regime where you're very used to doing business in, in markets that can be quite different. So I think that moving into another country can sometimes be less daunting coming from the U.S. I think that what's unique about the London market is that in some ways it is the most sophisticated market but also is so close to the global market and the U.S. market. So I think that there's a lot of flow there intellectually. And I think that that I I am really interested in Charlotte's point about how differently pricing is done. I think one of the things that is quite interesting about it being a pricing business that is the first one to cross the chasm is that pricing and underwriting both are uh, sort of universal problems in insurance. And in some ways, it is the core of insurance, you know, sort of that distribution, and you've got pretty much 90% of what you do all day. So uh, I think that, uh, I think some of these big problems are exactly the kinds of problems that can be shared globally. Martha, I love that. I think it's what, is it a double use of the crossing the chasm, because I think you're alluding to Jeff Moore's book, Crossing the Chasm for Building a Technology Platform, and, and H- Hyper Exponential has certainly got beyond that point of a few clients into the early majority now. 
And I, and I'm, I suspect you're also the chasm of the Atlantic Ocean between the US and and the UK. I just got a question for you though. In, in terms of this was a slightly later fund or large fundraise we might have seen in the US in the past. Do you, are you seeing that as a trend where people are, are doing what Hyper Exponential and others have done? They've gone out, generated revenue, got a well-established position, and then are going for these larger fund rounds, whereas before they might have been going for larger rounds much earlier. Yeah, I have to say that I, I feel like this is an unusual circumstance where there's significant traction and really a truly significant fundraise. I mean, this almost reminds me of the SoftBank days where SoftBank would show up with $100 million and say, what could you do if you had $100 million? And there was a, even a little bit of a backlash there of, if I don't give it to you, I'm going to give it to one of your competitors. So I think that what Andreessen and Battery are really doing are saying, you now have the capital to succeed. We believe in you, but also we are looking to create a barrier through capital. And I have not seen that. I would say that historically or recently in the U.S., people are raising uh, somewhat more traditional 2019 type size fund raises and are bringing more proof to the table. Now, it's possible that uh, in 2024, we are starting to see some pricing that is reminiscent of 2020 with less traction and higher raises. I think so far those are outliers and Primarily, people are sticking to the business of laying out proof and taking modest amounts of capital, very mindful of what it takes to get to a break-even position. So, Martha, you're joining three Brits. Well, I guess uh, Nigel was born in Ireland, so Brits plus one Irishman. So, of course, we're going to be talking about the weather, but I know you had some commentary about what you think is happening or what, what a question about what the impact is going to be of more high-frequency higher level losses as opposed to what we might have seen more traditionally with sort of large but less frequent catastrophic losses. Yeah, I think um, Swiss Re had an article on this topic where thunderstorms, or as uh, the insurance industry insists on calling them convective storms, really uh, created damage of around or insured claims of about $60 billion this year. And that compared to a little over $100 billion for NatCat. Of that $60 billion, by the way, $50 billion of it was in the U.S., so this is a really big deal in terms of how what has been traditionally considered non-CAT is really ruining the model for insurance, which has seen catastrophes as occasional events and convective storms as a relatively low-level issue in terms of damages. But overall, this the concept of extreme weather has been really putting insurers on the back foot. We've started to see a few people come up with solutions. I have seen some discussion around ILS uh, for extreme weather. I haven't seen any traction on that, but I've seen discussion about it. And, and in some ways, uh, that as a non-market correlated event, that, that makes sense. I think the other thing that we've seen is the tiptoeing in of the idea of covering some of these non-catastrophic events as a specific layer in aggregate. And I think that there are no at least one startup that's going 
down that path. And then finally, uh, we are starting to see more being done on parametric. It's a fast changing world, isn't it? I think a really interesting point after the way it was brilliantly introduced there by Martha was what the insurance industry is doing about leading the world on this. There is no greater place for the understanding of risks and the understanding of what needs to be done about them than insurance. So I think it's really absolutely essential that the insurance industry speaks up and talks about the kind of materials, where people build, what has to be done for for breaks and protections in order that we can consider living the lives that we want to live. If the world is changing, we can't stay the same. And so I really want to see insurance taking a leading voice in this. Matthew and I were talking before about this Is this a consumer challenge or is this a corporate challenge or is it a bit of both? Martha, to your point, of 50 of those 60 billions of losses were in North America. So to that, how does the average consumer think about insurance and how does it impact them? Will they have the cover at all? And again, you've seen this with things like wildfire in California and events in Florida and, and elsewhere where some products are becoming so unaffordable that people just don't have them at all. You end up with insurer of last resort and and so much more. So I think where it's prevalent in the area that you're in, people are being made more aware of it. But if you didn't, if you're in the UK, for example, and don't live near the sea, a river or an area that floods, you probably don't care too much about it. I think there's a level of education and awareness that the industry and government needs to do collectively to try and bring people's knowledge and awareness of what this means to you going forward you know we've just had cop 28 in the last in the last couple of months and it was high high on the agenda everywhere there the world economic forum has just happened and of course everything there is about ai at the moment so i think these things go in cycles no, no pun intended but they go in cycles to say what's top of mind and how do we keep educating and bringing awareness to these events that are going on but these these are no longer one in 200 events they're happening all the time. But we're sitting here in the UK in a bit of a storm right now. So, Nigel, I think what you just said is that AI should solve uh, climate change for us. Is that the analysis? I think AI is solving everything. Joking aside, there's some really cool things going on in this space. You probably saw uh, DeepMind's graph cast that they announced for 10-day weather prediction with a tiny model. When I say tiny, everyone's talking about LLMs these days and billions or trillions of parameters. I think this from memory has something like 38 million parameters and gave a very accurate forecast or the most accurate forecast with 10 days days looking out. I think AI broadly, and I'd be biased not, not to say this, is genuinely giving us the ability to look at these things in completely different ways, whether it's the model, whether it's using satellite data or so much more. And, and actually Google and many other parts of the Alphabet group are actually looking at this, as you might imagine, in conjunction with some of the insurance organizations, uh, governments and so much more. So it's actually a really exciting place. My, my, I guess my challenge is, what's the so what to everyone else out there until it becomes a problem that they can't get something, because ultimately it then falls back onto a a government issue. If I can't afford it individually and I'm left stranded, as we saw through many of the floods over the years, someone's picking it up and it's usually the taxpayer. What's the alternative? That's so what, Nigel, as well, for the actual policyholder as well. So if you have the data and you know these things are coming, that's fantastic. But what actions do people have to take? And as an insurance company, how many actions are you going to absolutely insist people take for them still to be covered? I mean, 
insurance works on this principle of restitution where, you know, everybody will be put back in their same position that they were in before. But we go, I think there's going to have to be more responsibility on the individual for that in a changing world, or it can't be, it can't be possible. So this kind of, again, links full circle back to that pricing point of view that are we going to start seeing risk factors for how people act and how people are protecting themselves against risk in areas like this go even further? So rather than just pricing on your postcode and where you live or, or you know, your the, the kind of trees that are near your house, am I going to be pricing on you as an individual being willing to put out those sandbags, being willing to dig that ditch, being, you know, willing to put in those fire breaks? But what, what if you're not able to put out those sandbags? So, I mean, Matthew, you've got decades of experience at RMS and elsewhere. You, and, and I've seen you speak at other events on, on, on this. What's, what's your take here? Deck of experience. Uh, it's where I first met Martha, actually, going back. Uh, I, for the sake of both of us, Martha, I won't declare how long ago it was. But um, yeah, I mean, that was back in my catastrophe modeling, Jays. You know, what's interesting to your point there, Charlotte, though, is it's very different in the UK versus in the US. I mean, the UK insurers are given flexibility to price based on risk. This, you know, I'd argue there's quite a good collaboration with the government with things like flood re that help provide a pool, uh, excuse the pun, for flood. But Martha, you might want to talk a bit about what happens in the US where you've got the admitted carriers in the US market have to file their, their rates with the state regulator. And so it's much harder to be able to change the rate. And actually, it can get quite political. And it's why we've seen, for example, in, in California, insurance companies starting to withdraw because they're being required to provide wildfire cover or fire cover in areas that maybe they don't want to, or even in, in Florida. But uh, Martha, you're literally <laughs> closer to this than all of us because you live there and you know that market very well. I, I would say there's a lack of co collaboration on that front. And I think that what one of the things that you see is there is a, a whole political aspect uh, where after 20 years, I think that California, for example, is finally being forced to accept that modeling might be quite a decent idea in terms of pricing insurance, as opposed to, for some reason, the approach has been entirely on uh, historical losses, uh, which are no longer predictive of future losses. So I, I think that the dysfunction between regulators and insurers in the U.S. is pu pushing us into a situation where there are people who are able to get insurance easily, but then there is an entire growing class of people who are either choosing not to take on insurance, and most people can't really afford that. You have to be at the real upper end to be making a rational decision to self-insure. But even we see in California, uh, Fairplan, which is our insurer of last resort, padded with uh, ENS for the upper end homes. Now, Fairplan was originally put together for coverage for a much more basic dwelling. And so it's not a good fit. I actually do think that the ENS market and the fact that it exists is part of the answer here. And I think that if we see some more creativity on that end, we will, we can answer these questions. But I, I think that a lot of the consumer facing the, the, uh, homeowners, insurers in the U.S. have really uh, had a, a hard set of years, and now they're just having to pull out of states. But you can't sustainably be a provider of homeowners insurance and say you're not going to insure California, Texas, and Florida, which is probably about half the population of the country. That's not 
possible. So I think that there are solutions to come there, but I think that we're going to have to be smart. And I do agree with Charlotte in terms of giving credit for the achievements, I suspect you're going to have to have more permanent achievements. Was there a berm put up in that neighborhood as opposed to uh, are you the kind of person who will put out sandbags? I, I suspect that there will become uninsurable uh, properties that are, if, if, you're, if you want a property on the wild urban interface, more and more you're going to have uh, ENS coverage, at which... Uh, as Nigel points out, it empowers the ENS provider to uh, put their rates up. And, and thanks, Martha. And just for those that don't speak insurance, ENS, of course, is excess and surplus. And that actually is outside of the rules of an admitted carrier. So they actually do have flexibility of pricing and actually to London's benefit because a lot of that business ends up in, in London. Uh, Nigel, we'll just transition to our third news item. I was going to say it's a good news story. It's not really a good news. It's a, it's a bad news story with a good news approach to it from, uh, from insurers, I think. Is that a fair way of characterizing it? It's a challenging one for sure, however you look at it, and it's getting more complicated. I've been watching this one from afar, no matter where I sit. And actually, back to Charlotte's very earlier point, I mean, we, we love insurance for a very important reason. Nothing moves in the world without it. This is, no pun intended, there's actually a really good example of where where and how insurance is being used. This is all around the impact of the Yemen and Ukraine situation on marine insurance. Now, marine insurance uh, is very different to every other insurance that we are probably used to on an annual basis versus per trip, per voyage, per, per journey. It's got complicated. We have a number of geopolitical factors, the war going on in the Ukraine, the attacks both 7th of October in Israel and Gaza. And since then, we've had, I think, almost every... Well, five of the top five to every one of the big carriers that would send ships through the various different uh, channels and seas, pulling out of shipping cargo. BP have stopped shipping oil. This has added something like 10 days to each of the routes that we would typically, typically uh, send goods and cargo through. So supply chains are in a bad state. Marine insurance, I think, has gone up to like 3% or gone up to 3% of the value of the vessel which is like record highs right now. So it's a really challenging position for us to get goods moved around the world. And we saw what happened the last time we had that clogged up with this uh, ship that uh, was grounded for days, right in the middle or at the end of COVID. So this for me is a really, really challenging, both geopolitical situation, but also then shows you how insurance is there to help mitigate some of these risks uh, and again, another example is someone like David Howden, who, along with Ascot, managed to ensure ships getting grain out of the Ukraine very early on. Now, that's a constantly changing situation. It was almost a, a, an open conversation for Martha, Charlotte, and you, Matthew, with regards to how we see insurance impacting some of these crises that, that will continue to challenge us day in, day out. I certainly know of insurtechs who can help you find where the ships are, but... Uh... Well, it's incredible, isn't it? It's, it's well, like you say, Nigel, it's one of these really, really case in points where insurance has such a huge... There's that IMF stat, isn't there, that when marine uh, rates double, it puts 0.7% on inflation, which, you know, governments around the world are trying to pull inflation down at the moment. And here's marine over here having such a huge impact. The marine world is, you know, it's one of the oldest lines of insurance. I 
feel a confidence that there's going to be a lot of innovation that comes through to find these solutions. One of the wonderful things about insurance is nobody wants the bad thing to happen because the bad thing involves the claim, but it also involves huge disturbance for the for the end consumer and possibly a disaster. So nobody wants the bad thing to happen. So how do we stop it happening in the first place? How do we de-risk it? And this is where insurance can really speak up as to measuring risk, as to the business cases for what actions you can take that can reduce those. So I hope that Marine will continue to innovate and find, but also really work in collaboration with, with its consumers and with its, with its customers here. Brilliant. Matthew? Yeah, I will say a couple of things. I mean, it, it, that's why I could characterize it as a good news story. It's, it's just really encouraging to see Lloyd step up and actually provide coverage because you know, it's such a critical function to be able to get ships out and they haven't got insurance. It's very hard to do it. And 3% of the, of the ship value is quite a lot. Still a lot cheaper than uh, insuring a Range Rover in central London. Not that I happen to own one, but I saw quotes recently that looked like it's something like 20% of the value of uh, a Range Rover. So it's much riskier to drive a Range Rover through London than it is to take a ship through the Black Sea. I'm not quite sure what we observe from uh, from that. Matthew, I think you're, you're spot on. It goes back to the very origins of Lloyd's of London and Edward Lloyd. I mean, this was a coffee shop to share news about safe passage across the seas as it was then, I think. And to Martha's point, there's a bunch of insurtechs in this space that have provided better insights on both what's on the cargo, where the ships are, and how good, bad, or indifferent the seas are at any point in time. So I think all of these things that we've discussed today, whether you look at better pricing, better insights through weather, and helping navigate safe passage are actually all intrinsically linked and shows how connected insurance actually is. So a nice summary, and I think uh, I think you'll see insurance continue to step up as we see this situation hopefully come to a safe conclusion for all very soon. Good. Well, I wanted now to go to our audience questions. Uh, I encourage everybody who's listening to leave us a question. There'll be a link in the episode notes. All you've got to do is just literally record your question. Uh, thanks to Jeremy Kleiser Jones for Soldry for today's question, which we're going to you're going to hear now. Hello, Matthew and the Instec team. My name is Jeremy Kleiser Jones, and I represent Solidry. We are building a parametric insurance-focused MGA for APEC, based in Tokyo. I appreciated joining your presentation with Hyper Exponential last year. Many of the attendees mentioned the burden of having to continually use Excel spreadsheets in order to price and administer underwriting transactions. This reminded me of the situation in the derivatives industry 15 to 20 years ago. This disconnect seems to me a missed opportunity. Oh, I love talking about spreadsheets. Obviously, that's the actuary in me. I think it's really interesting. I've you know spent more than 20 years looking at software in insurance and what works and why things get embedded and why they don't. And while early in my career, I think I was more frustrated why new techniques weren't coming through quicker. I think the more senior you get, the more you understand it's so important for tools not to just be a black box. It's so important for the senior people in the organisation to really understand what's going on and understand where the conclusions come from. And I think if you come from that sort of empathy, then you're in a much better position in order to, to think about changing softwares and, and software sales. I know from Excel, it's it's the huge familiarity. It's like suddenly wanting to have a different language to some people, I think, in order to be able to come away from it. I know Milliman's got this fantastic tool, Milliman Mind, which kind of, it, it uses Excel base and then it 
enables these really powerful models and with sort of capabilities and controls to come together in a kind of auditable framework. And I think that's that's super smart because what that does is use the the groundwork that people are really comfortable with to create models that are very useful and and come, you know, get over a lot of the problems that are in there. I think it really is about what you're trying to do and really understanding the tools. I often go back to the word generational. When we grew up, my dad always said to me, Nigel, you grew up with technology, so you understand it better. I always used to laugh at that, but now having a 14-year-old son and an 11-year-old daughter and seeing how they interact, I actually started to understand this for the first time because they just completely do things in very, very different ways. Equally, the familiarity that we've got with spreadsheets means I think that some of the, the slowness to change or move. I like the idea of the Millimans or the renew platforms from uh, HX or some of the things that we're doing with collaboration and workspace with Google. We, we are changing slowly the mindset. I think the driver for change, or one of the big drivers for change will be soon. We can no longer process the amount of data that we've now got and haven't done effectively. We'll end up pressing calculate going out for lunch and coming back and it'll still be running. So that's why I think we do need to use new capabilities, new tools that are available out there for us to go do. And actually, if we can explain it in a language that's familiar to us, whether it's natural language with large language models or it's Excel formulas or whatever else it may be, it's going to be a, it's without question in my mind, going to change. I saw this first probably a decade ago with IFRS and a shifting spreadsheets around organizations with versions being updated all over the place and having no real view of what was going on in the business. So it can't continue like this for sure. I'm not going to try and spell out that acronym, Nigel, because I, but I know it's the Kansas Standards one. And I'm not going to buy your point about getting older means you can't use technology. My mother is 83, has just discovered emojis on WhatsApp and, uh, and between WhatsApp and Instagram. She's, uh, she's still learning. So I don't think it's any excuse for any underwriters to give up. But Charlotte, I did like your point because sometimes we too easily say, well, you should just use new technology. And I don't think you're saying we should hang in there with our spreadsheets, but the barriers to change are quite important. Martha, what about your perspective? I'm sure you're seeing some companies, well, I hope you're seeing some companies because quite a few out there who are actually sort of providing solutions to, to help, as one of them puts it, cure their addiction to uh, spreadsheets. It is interesting because I, uh, like Charlotte, I have actually seen some companies that allow the user to live in Excel, but have a much more powerful back end. And that ideologically pure, but in terms of getting into an organization, I think that it, it that is an effective manner. I think the other thing that this comes down to is that for a startup, you really have to demonstrate you know, that you are 10x better than the old way of doing it. If you uh, go in and say, I can deliver a 20% improvement on your Excel performance, nobody wants to hear that. If you could come in and say, you can get this done in an hour instead of eight hours, I think people are ready to listen to that. But I think that, that having that magnitude is really what gives the startups power to, have a, to get into the, the companies. Just to wrap up the show, it would be a miss of us all to not look at one of the final few folks carrying the Olympic torch of predictions for InsurTech in the year ahead. Martha, you wrote for Carrier Management uh, some of your top predictions. What's one or two of your favourite that you've talked about? I think you had seven in total. So what two do you want to pick out that are really exciting you? 
Well, you know, Matthew challenged me to look at my 2023 predictions and say which were my best and worst. I never like looking backwards. I, I'm way before uh, looking forwards. But I think in 23, I predicted that the insurance uh, industry would be ready to modernize their infrastructure. And, and I just couldn't have been more wrong. <laughs> My timing was off, but I think more deeply, what really it comes down to is the uh, insurance industry will not modernize its infrastructure. It will build on top and extract from its existing infrastructure. And I should just stop talking about modernizing infrastructure. It's not going to happen. So I didn't talk about that in 2024. I talked about something a little different. And then I think the other thing that is so powerful, it, I brought it up in 2023, and it also headlined 24, is AI. It's about AI. I think that insurers have really engaged. They've engaged at a high level in the organization. CEOs are thinking about it. Now, from an insurtech's point of view, I think that that engagement hasn't always delivered full-fledged projects. It is difficult from an insurtech's point of view to know whether you have an entry-level project or whether you've ticked something off of someone's list that now they feel smarter about AI. And I think that that has been a transition period in 2023 for sure. But I think this is, it is very obvious that AI has so many of the elements that are perfect to help insurance understand its own data better. It being such an analytical uh, business, but also that AI is, does not wear the blinders that we wear in terms of what the risks are. So is perfectly happy to come back and say, actually, this other risk that you don't even talk about has a significant impact on the calculation you're doing. I actually think that uh, that we are going to go far on that. And uh, that, that came up in 23 when I tried to get chat GPT to write my whole predictions article, but it was so flat, I had to uh, go back in and do the editing myself. I think we call that human in the loop still. So actually, you've got two really interesting points for me. I'm not going to give up on modernization. I think it's going to be a long, slow road, but we'll definitely get there. You didn't mention embedded, and I've been writing about embedded for about six years as one of your two favorite. It'll eventually become true. I'm pretty confident of that. The AI one, I'm just going to finish on this one, actually, Matthew, if I can. I know we're, we're hitting time, but watching a interview last night with at the World Economic Forum between, I think, the global CEO of Deloitte, the global CEO of Zanoffi, the global CEO of L'Oreal, so lots of other, you know, different industries. They showed a chart that um, Simon Torrance shared as well, which was jobs with the highest potential for augmentation. And at the top, in surprise, absolutely no one was insurance underwriters with 100% exposure to augmentation. I think that's your point. It's not about replacing underwriters with a rough. This is about how we use the tools that are out there, BARD, Gemini, ChatGPT, and loads of others that are out there now to actually augment the things that we do to help you go faster and better. We've seen that ourselves with Hiscox and Key and so many more. So I think, Matthew, with that, a good place to finish. Maybe we'll have you on this time next year, Martha, to see how well AI is actually done in 2024. Yeah, 
Nigel, we've been slightly careful about uh, you and I being too, uh, I wouldn't say critical, we don't be critical of Martha, too rigorous on assessing Martha's homework, because neither of us have done predictions for quite a long time. And I would actually call out, for those who want to hear Martha's 2024 predictions, there is an excellent podcast, the FNO InsureTech podcast with Rob, Lee and Matt, and Martha goes through a whole hour of predictions for next year. So we'll come back, Martha, and we'll use that for, or, or maybe with the help of ChatGPT. But before we wrap up, we do have uh, two minutes left before we turn into pumpkins, Nigel. So Charlotte, uh, do you have sort of 15 or 30 seconds worth of your thoughts on predictions or any of Martha's predictions? Really fascinating predictions. I think I have one observation, which is interesting around the risk of the year being climate, which it really deserved to be. I mean, our, our conversation before showed that. But I was talking recently to one of the, the content organizers of one of the largest conferences. And they said last year, whenever they did a climate panel, the room just wasn't full. So they didn't know whether to put it in next year. Isn't that interesting? Why are we not interested enough as an insurance industry to turn up to what is really one of the most important risks. Brilliant. Thank you very much. That's it from us. Tune back in next time. Don't forget to send in your questions. We very much enjoy them. I'm going to quickly check where people can find out more about each of us. So Charlotte, where can people find out more about you? Come find me on LinkedIn or find out all about Milliman on our website. And Martha. LinkedIn as well and brewerlane.com. And yes, that is like the beverage. And you can find me, uh, Nigel, on LinkedIn at Nigel Walsh. Matthew, back to you. Uh, thanks, Nigel. And yes, Matthew Grant on LinkedIn and, of course, on the podcast. So just that brings us to say thank you very much, Martha, Charlotte, Nigel, but Martha and Charlotte in particular. You know how incredibly busy you are. I really appreciate your insights. We've got an awful lot in there. But we know you've got a, your next meeting to go on to. So that's it from us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Instec is thrilled to be supported by Google Cloud for our upcoming event, The Future of Underwriting Has Arrived in New York. We are calling all U.S. insurers to join us on the 14th of March. Go to www.instech.co to find out more. Well, that's it for today. Now, if you're keen to learn more about the technology that is empowering the specialty insurance market and beyond all around the world, or you want to find out specifically how Instech can help you, then have a look at our brand new website, www.instech.co, or contact me, Matthew Grant or any of us on LinkedIn or hello at instec.co. That's it. We're done.